Okay, we are doing something different, as uh, Steve already hinted at that in our announcements this morning. I'm going to spend some time with some character studies, and uh, I think they're a lot of fun to work with. Uh, our basic theme, which you've heard a lot out of my mouth, I'm sure, as I preach, living godly in an ungodly world. And uh, we talk about that, especially, you know, we've spent a lot of time in Jude, and we've discussed uh, quite a few things there that the church is called to. And I think it's good at times to step back and see individuals who did live godly in ungodly times, and that encourages us, and, and it's good that we study their lives too. So, if you travel with me to First Samuel... Now, it's not just a, a single sermon for a person, but we're going to spread this out for the next, maybe, well, not into Christmas time, of course. So, it, I'm not sure how it's going to span yet, because I'm just working on them week by week. And so, uh, we're going to deal with two individuals. And one is the mother, and one is the son. And the mother's name was Hannah, and the son's name was Samuel. And so I'm going to start with Hannah, because it's always ladies first. And uh, then we're going to get to Samuel on the second side of our study. Two generations, even, of those who live godly in ungodly times, in an ungodly world. Now, character studies are a lot of fun. I enjoy them a great deal. But I'm mindful you have to be careful. You have to be very careful worth working with character studies. It's easy and so often presented when we talk about somebody's life in Scripture that we become somewhat symbolic or allegorical, um, and those things happen pretty easily. There, I could show you books after books that do it that way. Uh, I don't want to be like that. You probably know I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, so I want to be very careful in presenting this. Just start with this statement. These are real people. They lived real lives. It's just God had their lives recorded in here. And if you had lived back then, you might have been the one in this book. But uh, God recorded their lives for us, for us to look at. And if we walk through the passage in a very sound hermeneutic, which I stress a lot, uh, we will be very careful that we're not just studying this uh, by putting all of the, the scriptural study habits to the side and we're going to look at them maybe just psychologically or sociologically or a philosophy uh, style of emphasis. Because when we do that, we lose sight that they were real. Um, and I don't want to do that. And sometimes even their example is often skewed to represent our times and uh, our cultures rather than their times and their culture. So I want to make sure I keep it that way too. Uh, in other words, we tend to transport people into the year 2021 rather than 1100 B.C. And so we place them in the church rather than in Israel, all that to say, is that the historical context is very, very important. And I'm going to try to keep that true as we go through here. 
Chuck Swindoll said this many years ago. He said that the 11th chapter of Hebrews, when he was teaching through it at Founders Week in Moody, years when I was a student there, he made a simple yet a very profound point, and it is this. People are people, and God is God. And I think that works very well when we start into the study of somebody else's life. Now, I won't deny, and we're going to see this, there are parallels to our day and our time as well. Godly people have had to live in an ungodly world ever since it became that way. And uh, that's been a whole history of mankind. When the Apostle Paul makes reference to Old Testament folks, in his message to the Corinthian church, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these words, and I'm going to read them to you, a handful of them here. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. I just told you the book of Exodus and Numbers. In a simple form, Paul wrote it that way. But notice how he picks up from that, starting in verse 6 of the same chapter. Now, these things happened as examples for us. That us stands out there. An example for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. For it was written that the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Let us not act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, and they are written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. A simple little paragraph, but Paul simply said, God had their lives recorded for us, and there's a lot we can learn from them, especially how not to do it. How not to do it. That was the example all the way through. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. And I'm afraid that a lot of the Old Testament comes out that way when you start studying the lives of some of these people. You say, ooh, let's avoid that problem. Aren't you glad your problems aren't in there? For everyone to say, ooh, let's avoid that problem. These folks are there. But what I like about all this is this. That that may be recorded, and if we just painted the whole Old Testament that way, we probably wouldn't want to spend much time in it. But there are people in those situations, that culture, that time span, that lived godly in an ungodly world. And we have examples of them. And we can glean much from their lives, especially in the departments we call faith and dependence which I believe we're still called to that, aren't we? To trust the Lord and depend upon Him. You find a godly person living in an ungodly world, you glean from them, and you say, wow, that was helpful for me. That helped me rethink where I'm at and what I'm walking through and, and what I can do too. 
many of these faithful people of the Old Testament became the cloud of witnesses we read about in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 12, right on the heels of chapter 11 and all those examples, the writer says, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also, like them, lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, we have something that they didn't have, because we can look to who? Jesus. And that's what it goes on to say. Looking unto Jesus, the, uh, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you want the perfect example of how to live godly in an ungodly world, you study the life of Christ. Now, Hannah is not referenced in Hebrews chapter 11. It could have been. Samuel, who will be the second part of our study, is referenced in Hebrews chapter number 11. Their stories are found in 1 Samuel. That's why we're going to chapter 1 today, and we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and look at Hannah today. A godly lady in an ungodly world. There's many things we're going to glean from this study. Now, let's see. Looking at the verses. 1 through 18. Let's hear it. I'm going to read. Now, there was a certain man from Ramathian, Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tahu, the son of Zoph, and Ephraimite. Now sometimes we read these passages in the Old Testament and we see names we don't understand. Or even, how do you pronounce that name? And they're challenging. And you may say, well, the pastor must seem to know. I'll tell you the only secret. Just whatever you say, say it with authority. <laughs> and everyone is convinced that's the way it goes. All right? So, if that sounded good to you, then we're on the right page. Verse 2, he had two wives. The name of his one wife was Hannah, and the name of his other's wife, Peniah, or Peniah, uh, and Peninnah, I'll get it three different ways, had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man would go up from his city yearly to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting at the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. 
She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. For as Hannah, as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away the wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Lord, help us as we study the life of this dear saint, that we glean from it what you would have us to know, encouraged by it, strengthened by it, challenged by it, however you bring it our way. Work in our hearts today, because your word is like that. And we thank you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me, let me present this as a beginning place. We've got several things to cover in her life, and there's several chapters we're going to look at. But today, it's just a first glimpse of what we have with Hannah. And uh, I want to look at the environment around her, because sometimes to understand what the godly life looks like, you have to see what the ungodly life looked like around her. And uh, I'm going to start with the spiritual climate that's given to us as clues within this passage. I'm going to start with the religious leaders today. Stellar examples of how not to do it. We would hope, and maybe we've been spoiled a little bit, that uh, our encounters in, well, here in the church and, and in our community and in our families, that we've had spiritual leaders that have done us a great deal of good, that we've been encouraged by them. We could see their lives and be appreciative of the way they set an example for us. I don't know what it'd be like to live in the day that Hannah lived. Even the religious leaders were very corrupt. It says in verse number 3, I'm just going to pull little pieces out here, at the very end of verse 3, it talks about the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. They were priests of the Lord. And they were serving there before the tabernacle, the place where she went to pray. Now, there are three individuals here. Let's start with Eli for a minute. It says, Eli sat by the seat, or on a seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Verse number 9 says, that was the tabernacle, and that's where Eli would sit. Now, Eli, you say, well, who is he? Eli was a descendant of Aaron. He was of the priestly family. 
He was uh, through Aaron's youngest, who was Ithmar. Ithmar was one of the two that survived when God struck Nadab and Abihu, if you know that story in the Old Testament. Uh, those were the two oldest of uh, Aaron's children. And here we have the very youngest of them. Now, the priestly line technically was supposed to go from the father to the oldest son, down to the oldest son, down to the oldest son, and stay in that progression. But somehow, the youngest son's descent is, is sitting there at the temple that day. Uh, you walk through the priestly line, you see that Eli is, is in this group. And he's sitting here at the tabernacle. It was assumed that he was operating like the high priest. He judged Israel for 40 years or so, and he was well advanced in his age. Um, but what was interesting about Eli's time, and if you go back to the book of Judges, you'll get a feel for this, is that the people did what was right in their own eyes. And that was a trend of all society around them, and especially in the priesthood. They were not godly at all. And there was nothing really impressive about Eli in this regard either. He did not have much regard for his own sons. Add to that. Hophni and Phinehas are there. Now, if you want the rest of their story, we can find it in chapter 2. In verse number 12, it starts a little dialogue there about Hophni and Phinehas. And you're not going to enjoy this, but I'm going to read it to you so you get a feel for it. Second, or 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. The sons of Eli were worthless men. All right? You go to a place to worship, and that's your spiritual leader. They were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Isn't that frightful? Yeah. They did not know the Lord. And it was the custom of the priests with the people. Huh. That was what everybody did. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come with the meat while it was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did a Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. You bring in your sacrifice, you're going to give it to the Lord. It was, if it was a peace offering, part of that went to your family. You would have a picnic, in other words, as you offered up this sacrifice. And so portions went to the Lord and portions went to your family, and they'd come with their giant pitchfork. And they'd say, uh, let us have our share first. And they stick it in there. And you could probably bet that they got the most of it. Just a big chunk of it. And all of the people of Israel were under that kind of thing. In verse 15, also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the men who were sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. In other words, even the section set aside to sacrifice to the Lord, they would come up and say, we want our portion first. And they would take it from the people. If a man said to him, well, they must surely burn the fat first, then they would take as much, then you could have as much as you desired. He'd say, no, but you shall give it to me now. If not, I will take it by force. You got a feel for these guys now? You like them? Probably not. 
he said, oh, this is terrible. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, it says. For the men despised the offering of the Lord. These were their priests who hated their job, hated the Lord, and took what they wanted. It also adds in verse 22, if you jump down there, this is not pretty at all, that Eli was very old. He was 98, I believe, when he died. And he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and what they did with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. That was in there too. Eli did not correct his own evil sons, who, by the way, were worthy of the death penalty according to the law. Yet the priesthood, which was meant to be mediators between man and God, it was designed to the people for the people to be led in worship of the one true God. It was supposed to be the beacon of the truth and the law of God, and they profaned it every single day that they stood before him. It's very interesting that Eli could not rebuke his own sons in the right way, but the first encounter with Hannah, he rebuked her. I said, hmm, that's very... And on top of that, he gave her a false accusation. Now, go to the tabernacle in those days, and you're not going to a spiritual retreat. You're not going to some place where you're going to be edified by the experience of being there. It was a place of unlawfulness. It was a place of immorality. It was a place of theft. In other words, it was ungodly. Even in the neighborhood of Hannah, if you go back a little bit and realize where she lived in Ephraim, we read of another Levite toward the end of the book of Judges, probably about her time, in probably in her vicinity, I'm guessing some of that, but some of that is, is just too coincidental that it's nearby. But that Levite had a concubine who became a harlot, and that's a really ter- horrible tale to tell, too. Uh, and the results are chapter 19, 20, 21, and so on of the book of Judges. And it was the lowest spiritual moments of the book of Judges. Those were the days of Hannah. Spiritual leadership, that's a mess. Let's look at her family for a minute. Her husband, Elkanah, we see his name quite a bit here in chapter number one. It says that he was from uh, the hill country of Ephraim. He was an Ephraimite by location, but he was a Levite by tribe. People have always tried to figure out, how did Samuel end up being a priest? That doesn't seem to fit. He was from Ephraim. Well, he lived in Ephraim, but he was the descendant of a Levite. Matter of fact, Elkanah was a descendant of the family of Kohath. If you study through the Old Testament in the days of Moses and the wilderness wanderings and all that, the tribe of Kohath, being a direct descendant of Levi, had a job. And that job was very important. Every time they had to move the tabernacle, which they did often, as they wandered those 40 years in the wilderness, every time they had to move it, it was the Kohathites who would go into the tabernacle as they were covering up all the furniture and stuff. And it was the Kohathites who would carry these very important parts 
of the temple or the tabernacle to the next location. There were other groups in charge of the tent pegs and the fences and the coverings on the, on the roof of the tents and all these things. But these had a special job. They were to take care of the holy furniture and parts and the basins and the spoons and all those things. And they had to make sure they got from point A to point B. And most people would say, well, that's kind of an important job. Elkanah was one of those. He was a descendant of the Kohathites. He was living in Ephraim. And you say, well, why would that be important? Because when God spread out the Israelites in the uh, giving of their different locations for their tribes, they all had inheritance and stuff, he took the Levites and spread them all over the land and gave them certain towns in each of the tribes. And this happened to be some of the neighborhoods that God gave to the Levites. So that's why Elkanah is from Ephraim. That was his job, to live there. All right? So far you're saying, okay, he's, he's supposed to be a descendant of Levi. He's supposed to have service to the tabernacle because the tabernacle was still set up. And that's, thus far we're okay with him. Until verse 2. Now it says he had two wives. You say, uh-oh. What's happening here? He had two wives, yeah. I find it very interesting. Some commentaries say that, well, they're trying to compensate for it, really. And so they said, well, you know, it was necessary because Hannah was barren and Elkanah needed descendants. You know, and, you know, Abraham and Sarah and that whole story. And and they're good examples of this kind of thing. And I just stopped right there every time I read it and I said, how well did that go? Not too good. No one ever talks about Isaac and Rebekah. All the other examples we talk about uh, of these two that had to bring in another wife in order to do... Isaac and Rebekah didn't do that. Manoah and Mrs. Manoah did not do that. Do you know who they are? Samson's parents. Several examples of this. And just an opinion comes to my mind, and I think I could support it from Scripture too. Number one is, when it comes to having two wives, that's not God's design. He made Eve. Not Eve and Eleanor and, you know, all these others. He made Eve. It was not in the law code. Go looking for it. It's not going to teach you how to have two wives. It doesn't have any reference in Scripture, by the way, that has a good result. Cite every example that's brought up and you're going to find some trouble right in that same neighborhood. And usually it's rivalry. And I don't think, on top of it all, it exemplifies faith. Because we can cite from the case of Isaac and Rebekah, when she could not bear children, what did Isaac do? Anyone want a wild guess that one? He prayed. Isn't that what faith does when it has a problem? We have one example of something good. When I was teaching many, many years ago, teenagers in a Sunday school class, uh, we were going through the life of Solomon, and and, uh, one of them actually asked, so what's wrong with that? When we got to the 900 or so wives. And 
I said, well, you know what? Just read the rest of Solomon's story and you'll find out what's wrong with that. Uh, they led him astray. But here, his wives are named. We'll come back to Penina. I think that's how we might say it in a minute. But it says in verse 2, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. And Hannah had no children, the end of verse number 2 says. And it says that he would go up to the city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Okay, now we're not getting into Hannah yet, but let's keep talking about uh, Elkanah here. You may be thinking, well, at least he's good. In this sense, he's dedicated to worshiping the Lord. He's going up to the tabernacle in order to worship. Here's fact. Number one, all Jewish men were attend the tabernacle three times a year. That's in the law code. They were supposed to be there for the Passover, for Pentecost, and for the tabernacle feast. They were required that by law. Elkanah is said to have gone up once a year. If you keep going through the passage, it keeps bringing it up. It keeps rephrasing that. But once a year, he'd go up. Once a year, he'd go up. Once a year, he was a Levite, folks. Guess what his job was? The tabernacle. And he'd go up once a year. His responsibilities were there. But he went up once a year. And you may say, but it, it had to have been a long distance. Well, if you go on your map in the back of your Bible, and you take Rama, put your finger on it, and you take your other and put it to Shiloh, which is also where the tabernacle was, you're not talking about a distance of about 20 miles. So I really don't think that was the complication. Oh, it's too far to walk. <laughs> I don't think so. It was actually quite convenient for him. But let's say, assume for a minute. Let, let's say that his lack of attendance was to keep his family safe from the behavior of the priest. All right, let's give him at least that much. Even if it were the case. Whose job was it to confront ungodliness in the priesthood? Would you be surprised if I said Levites? They were supposed to hold each other accountable in the things of the Lord. That's what they were supposed to do. That's why God spread them throughout all the land. They were supposed to be in the cities and the tribes where they'd have a spiritual influence in the life of people living all over the land. They were supposed to be uplifting people and teaching them the law. A good example is Ezra later. He decided, I will do this. I, will, I said it in his heart, to know the law and teach it. That's what a Levite was supposed to do. Elkanah is going up once a year. We also notice that Elkanah did not rebuke his wife, Peninnah, when she provoked Hannah, which bothers me. When I read that, that bothers me. Instead, he would encourage Hannah to see the bright side of things. After all, I'm your husband. Does that, how well does that float? Does that work okay? Elkanah would say to her in verse 8, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you eat and why is your heart sad? Just think of this. I'm better to you than ten sons. I added a few words. It says he did love her. And his expression of love was to fill her place twice as much, her plate, twice as much than anybody else. And the day came that Elkanah sacrificed. He gave portions to Peninnah, 
his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. In, in a few words, one commentary summed it up this way. Elkanah was somewhat shallow in complacency. In other words, his spiritual thermometer worked, but it didn't rise very high. You won't find him in the book of Hebrews, will you? Now, what is all this about? What's this suggest to us? The worst of Hannah's home environment was her rival, Peninnah. There's not really many verses about her life after this story. You know, you want to guess why? Because she constantly provoked Hannah, constantly provoked her. It says that she had children, sons and daughters, and Hannah had no children. But this is the only chapter that records anything she ever did, and then Scripture was silent about her from that day on. I find that's kind of interesting. But let's talk about this rival just for a few minutes. It says in verse 6, she would provoke her bitterly to irritate her. And it was because the Lord had closed her womb. Isn't that horrible to you? That's horrible. What did Hannah have to do with that? Nothing. It was the Lord's work. If we had sound effect Bibles, I'm going to invent one one day, where you push a button and it makes a sound. All right? Kids have these. And I thought we should too. But this is where you push the boo button. Alright? Because you're like, what is wrong with this lady? Why does she treat this other in such a horrible way? Matter of fact, in verse 7 says, It happened year after year. As often as they went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her as if waiting for that day to see her weep and not eat. From these words, we... we See, she especially attacked her at that one time of the year when they came to worship the Lord. Would you like that distraction every time you came to church? No, that's right. Somebody provoking you and making you cry and you can't focus on what you're there for. This lady spoiled it every single time for Hannah. Every single time. They were there to focus on the Lord. There was a time to be humble Uh in yourself, to, to review the Lord's mercy, to talk about His faithfulness, to pray, to sacrifice. But it became a time of torment for her. It was a time to be provoked. It was a time to, to find satisfaction for Penaniah to watch Hannah weep and not eat. That's like spoiling Christmas dinner every year. Okay, you got an environment in your mind now? Spiritual climate? Terrible. Husband's spiritual temperature? Not so good. Rival? Oh, that's terrible. That's the life of Hannah, as we're introduced to her. That's where she lives. That's why I chose the word living godly in an ungodly world, because the spiritual leaders couldn't help her. Her husband didn't help her. Her rival certainly didn't help her. But Hannah was different than the rest. 
She took her problems to one place. And that was to the Lord. Now, we know her situation was not life-threatening. It's not like facing an army or a Goliath, as we read some of those stories in the Old Testament. But the Lord is pleased whenever we bring anything to Him. Do you know that? The Lord wants you to bring whatever is heavy-hearted, whatever is a burden, whatever is great, whatever is not so great, not so hard. When, when, when people provide or are unwilling to provide or unable to provide or nobody gives a hand or you're stuck in the middle of it all, the Lord still says to you, come to me. Come to me. I find it interesting that Hannah didn't go to her husband to say, would you pray for me? Isn't that what a Levite should do? She didn't go there. And he certainly wasn't Isaac who prayed for his wife to bear children. Hannah didn't go to see Eli either that day. We simply see her going to the Lord to pray. Verse number 9, Hannah arose from eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting by the seat, the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. This is so precious in the sight of the Lord. It's such a precious thing. Psalm 56 starts this way in verse 3. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack and they lurk and they watch my steps as they've waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them forth in anger. Put down those people, O God. But you have taken my account of my wanderings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? I've always stopped and wondered about that. Does God have jugs up there all over heaven? He says, oh, there's one cry. Go get those tears. And I think that's rather interesting. Why would God care about our tears? Why would he think those are precious to him? Enough that he'd keep them. When we get to heaven, are we going to walk around and say, whoop, there's my bottle. I can tell. Look how full that thing is. God hears your tears. This is great. That Psalm 56 I was just reading to you. Then my enemies will turn back in that day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Nobody else was for her. But God was for her. What, what an access she had right there. She could go before the Lord in prayer. I'm afraid we don't take into account what a wonderful thing that is. At times, we forget the access that we have to talk to the God of the universe. The one who created all these things around us at any moment, at any time, is willing to hear you. And we as believers are even more blessed than Hannah was. Why? Because Christ has made a way through His blood that we have access to the Father at any moment whatsoever. We can go and talk. We don't have to go looking for a tabernacle. 
We don't have to face Jerusalem or something of that nature. We have our God who hears us. The book of Hebrews chapter 4 starts to describe Jesus Christ as our high priest. And I love the words of this because it's quite a contrast to any other high priest that ever sat on this earth. It says, therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as, yet, as we are and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. Do you do that in prayer? Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. One of my professors many years ago told me that's the definition of grace, help in the time of need. And we can go before Him at any moment to find that help. Any moment we can walk before Him with confidence. I love that phrase. Because when I think of confidence, I'm not thinking of something cocky. Like I walk in there and I'm rolling the place. But the fact is, I could take anything to Him in confidence. I could take anything to Him. Do you know He knows it already? Whatever burden you carry, He already knows it. Whatever your situation is, he already knows it. He knew Eli, and he knew Hophni and Phinehas, and he knew Elkanah, and he even knew Peninnah. And God was waiting to hear Hannah. But God knew her environment. God knew what she was dealing with. God welcomed her prayers. She came with a broken heart, and she found grace to help in the time of need. God was eager to listen. And think of this for a minute, folks. When I go through the New Testament and I think about prayer, this is a beautiful passage I love in Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. The fact is, we ask too little. We think so small. Remind yourself when you go into prayer, who are you talking to? Who is this one you have confidence in? Who is this one that you can go to when there's nobody else you can talk to? This one will listen, and this one, this one is able. He's able to do far beyond. I love that phrase. Far beyond all that we ask or think. In baseball, that's an error. You're throwing to first base and you go far beyond the first baseman. Throw it into the dugout or throw it up into the sand. They say, whoop, that's an error. But when you're in prayer, God can answer far beyond all that you ever ask or think. That's never an error. That's a blessing. I'm just amazed how often God answers prayers like that. Just in, It's His character. And that's what Ephesians 3.20 is trying to tell you. He is the one who is able I think we've been studying that a little bit lately, haven't we? God is able. Where are you going to take your prayer concerns? Where are you going to take your broken heart? You're living in an ungodly world too, folks. Have you ever felt the pressure of that? Ever come crushing down on you? 
You look in your environment and say, there's no help here. You look in, in to, to a spouse, maybe. You look to a father. You look to a daughter. You look to a mother. You look to somebody around you and say, wouldn't it be nice if they can help too? And they can't. And you say, I don't know where to go. Well, you have one place guaranteed you could go every single time. And that's God. That's the right place to go. What's interesting to me is that when you read these biographies of these people, how often it comes up with this, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. And I just ask the simple things for us. Someday when people read your biography, are they going to mark, and they prayed, 